Okay, folks, we're going to gather together just whenever you feel comfortable. <laughs> you know what we should do? We should divide the room, and uh, one side will be those who just want to have frivolous fellowship, and the other side would be those who want to explore the treasures in God's Word. Take your time. Get your donut. That's important. Hey, uh, Ron, I think it's, it's not good. Feedback. Tons of it. And uh, could it be the position of that monitor? It could. I don't know if you know this guy, but this is Brother Ron, and Ron heads up our media and television ministry. That's him. He's a great guy. Great guy. And he is helping us today because our normal uh, person is not able to be here, and we thank you for that. Do you I'll, I'll have to turn you down a little bit, so you're going to have to use the mic. It's actually just yeah. around in the room. Yeah, that'd be fine. Oh, that'd be good. That'd be good. He wants to turn me down. Yeah. Thanks for the amens. My wife has been trying to do that for years. Okay, so we'll be right with you. We're going to just, I'm rambling a little bit so that Ron could get a feed on things. How are we doing now? Is it, is it, I think it's, I don't know if you did anything or I just changed my attitude, but it sounds better. Is it okay? Think it's good? Okay, good. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Ron, you'll get better at this the more you practice. Ron and crew put together the marvelous, uh, TV stories, if you watch Sagefront TV, where we get to know each other's background better. And a little plug, if you know of someone who has a story to tell, or if you do, uh, why don't you contact Ron and let him hear from you? We've heard marvelous stories. One lady from Russia who came to know the Lord there and was saved out of what she called um, scientific atheism. And then we heard Stella Walsh's story not too many weeks ago. And you know, Stella uh, was a nun in Columbia and came to know the Lord personally. Um, We heard, uh, we have Dr. Charles Nelson, who uh, has been a professor for many years and he's sight impaired, but has eyes that see things most do not see. He's come to see the Lord Jesus as a Savior. See, these are wonderful stories. You find out things about one another you didn't know. So if you have a story to tell, uh, please visit Ron. I think I'm speaking for him when I say they welcome that. It's hard to come up with good things week after week. So if you have a story or know someone who has a story to tell about your life and how the Lord has changed you, that would be great. All righty, here we are in Jeremiah chapter 2. So turn there, if you will, easy to find, right after Isaiah. Big, lengthy book. He's referred to as a major prophet because he has so much to say. Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll read through it. I'll make some comments and then some applications at the end. Here we go, Jeremiah 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... You see how Jeremiah opens? He's going to have some hard things to say. 
And the people to whom he is about to say it may respond poorly. So here's his groundwork defense. These are not my words, says he. I'm just the messenger. This is the word from God. So he starts out that way. Now verse 2, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem. Is it just the city that's in view there? Or is this a representation of a larger thing? I'll answer. It's a larger thing. Jerusalem, capital of Israel, represents the Israelites. They're going to be the people group who will receive, whether they like it or not, uh, God's message through Jeremiah. Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not known. It's kind of sad. It's creator God who spoke things into existence in the power of his word. It's transcendent deed to you has no beginning nor any end. He's self-sustaining. He extended himself in a covenant bond with this people group, and now all he has left is to think of better earlier days with them. There was a better time, says he. I have always loved you, says he, and you returned it then, but you no longer do. Do you know God is suffering from unrequited love? His love is not being returned. In fact, he uses the image of marriage. He uses the term betrothal. When God enters into a covenant relationship with a people group, he becomes heavenly husband to a bride. You can relate to that as Christians. So it hurts him to the heart. He's made himself, think about it, Almighty God has made himself susceptible to pain. He's experiencing the pain of a beloved people group gone away from him. And he says, you know what I remember? I remember how you followed after me in the wilderness. Isn't this ironic? During Israel's worst days, she was at her best. In the wilderness, she had no notion of her provision and her protection, her direction in life. She was so totally dependent on Almighty God that she followed him devotedly. Now that she's out of the wilderness and in the land of promise, Things are worse. It's an interesting thing for us to keep in mind. When I'm in the wilderness spiritually or just in terms of life, relationally, you too, a heart cry to God is for him to get us out of the wilderness. And that's legitimate. But frankly, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we do better in the wilderness. It enhances our sense of dependence on God. And then when we talk to him, we're not praying. We're really crying out to him. It's different. When we come to church, we're not just singing the songs. We are feeling the words. We don't just go through the motions. We're moved to tears. When we access the Bible, it's no longer to study it. It's to survive the wilderness. It's different. I wonder if the wilderness is not so bad. It feels bad. But I wonder if it's not the best spot for us to be in. So Israel did better in those days. Not so good now. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first of his harvest. All who, it's an agricultural metaphor. All who ate of it became guilty. Even uh, uh, evil came upon them, declares the Lord. So, so God chose Israel. And if anyone messed with Israel, God took care of those people. That's essentially what he's saying. 
He's saying, I pr- protected you. Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. That's a reference to Israel. And all the families of the house of Israel, same thing. Thus says the Lord, what in, look at, God has to ask a kind of haunting rhetorical question. What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? It's, you can't answer this question. There's no answer to it. You know what God is saying? Look, 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 look. Can you please tell me the justification behind your rebellion? What did I do that was so bad? How did I let you down? What injustice? How did I abuse you? How did I exploit? Did I neglect you? Did I abandon you? What flaw did you find in me to justify abandoning me and walking after emptiness and becoming empty? You see? It's sad, don't you think? It's quite sad. You know, it's like a grieving parent who sees a child going astray. By the way, does your Bible, verse 5, um, does it have the word idol or idolatry or anything like that in there? You have that? That's legit. See, see, in Hebrew, the same root word for idol is the word behind empty or emptiness. So that's where they can be used by your translators interchangeably because that's the point. If Israel were to stay fully devoted to her true God, she would remain fully provided for, protected, and satisfied. But if she abandoned the fullness of her covenant bond with God, she would find only emptiness in worshiping idols of her own creation. Maybe you have found it. Don't raise your hand. You too are privy to a covenant. It's a new covenant with Almighty God. Maybe you have found that times when you have drifted from him, you have found out you have substituted fullness for emptiness. There is no one on earth more empty than a disobedient Christian. So anyway, verse 6, they didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, my inheritance you made an abomination. Now God indicts three categories of leaders in ancient Israel. Here's the first, priests, religious people. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? It means they didn't seek him personally. And those who handle the law didn't even know me. Can you imagine that? The priests who are responsible for representing God to the people didn't even pursue God personally themselves. You think there's any parallel in our day to day? Do you realize the world is becoming increasingly religious and yet is decreasing in its capacity, in its willingness to draw personally near to God. So you have a proliferation of religious expression more than I have ever seen. Some of it has aspects that are quite endearing and beautiful, and yet it's empty. So you have the leaders of whole religious groups and denominations, even some naming the name of Jesus, who don't know him personally. That's not outlandish, is it? 
No, it's actually happening in our day. And then God turns to other leaders. These were political. The rulers also transgressed against me. So it's not just the religious leaders who've gone astray in ancient Israel. It's their civil and political leaders. Can you relate to that today? And then the third group, prophets. You know, the prophets are to declare uh, the words of God. Instead, they prophesied not by God, but by Baal. Who's he? He's the chief Canaanite deity of the land. Instead of Israel influencing the Canaanites, she permitted herself to be influenced by the Canaanites. She was not transformed. She was conformed to the surrounding religious environment. So the leaders, religious leaders, abandoned the word of God, prophesied by the words of a false deity. I was a chaplain years ago in the military, and I'll never forget, I was uh, serving, you serve with other chaplains, and most are good and some are, are not. And one in particular identified with a Christian denomination uh, of an entirely different theological uh, ilk than the one I was identified with. And so I remember in chapel when he had all kinds of military people to minister to, on one day he preached to them from the words of Edgar Cayce, who's a deceased uh, mystic occultist of old Edgar Cayce. On another Sunday when he had this unbelievably open, receptive, captive audience. That's the beauty of the military. You got them right there, man. He preached to them from the words of Khalil Gibran, an Eastern religious person. He had 66 books of inspired. He had the word of God, but he did not declare to them it. He prophesied in essence by Baal. See it? Then verse 9, therefore I will yet contend with you. See the word contend? It's a legal term. It moves the atmosphere into a courtroom. It's God saying, I intended to be your husband and you my bride. I intended to be uh, your father and you my child. But because of your response to me, things are different. Now, I shall be your plaintiff and judge. You shall be the defendant. I will bring a charge against you. That's what the word means. Verse 10, for cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's been such a thing as this. So what's going on there? Imagine yourself in the Holy Land, present-day Israel, along the Mediterranean coast. If you turn this way and travel west across the Mediterranean Sea, if you cruise in that direction, eventually you're going to land on the coast of Cyprus. That's what this is, the coastlands of Kitim, that's Cyprus, west. And then if you turn this away and travel east, there are Arabian peoples north and east. That's Kedar in the ancient world. You know what God is saying? Israel, I want you to take a tour in your mind. Readers of this text, I want you to go on a tour in your mind. I want you in your mind to traverse Uh, the geography from west to east. I want you to survey the other people groups. Can you find one people group who did what you, Israel, have done? And what is it that they've done? Here it is, verse 11. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
You know what God is saying? Pagan nations around you, Israel, are more faithful to their false gods than you have been to me, your true God. They're not giving up on false gods, but you gave up on a true God. And God says you ought to be so affected by this, here's how it ought to affect us. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. He's saying the cosmos, the natural order, ought to be impacted upon by the degradation of what Israel has done to her God. Uh, By the enormity of the most spiritually privileged people group on earth, Israel, Jewish people, the most spiritually privileged people group on earth, abandoning the privilege and going after false gods. And God says, even the heavens ought to shake and shudder at the ramifications. For my people, verse 13, have committed two evils. Here's the first. They have forsaken me. Here's the second. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So here's the two sins. They abandoned me, Sin number one, sin number two, they took on a substitute for me. Now, God's using a language that is very familiar to Middle Eastern people. It has to do with water. The best source of water in the Middle East is a naturally flowing spring of water. God says, that's like me. I'm a fountain of living water. It's fresh. It's cool. It's healthy. It's satisfying. In contrast to it is a man-made cistern. You carve out the rock. You plaster it. It rains. You collect it. You can see ancient cisterns in Israel today. There's a problem. The water in it can become putrefied. Also, it can the cistern can develop a crack and not even hold water. See the analogy? God is saying, you gave up me a fountain of satisfying, delightful, healthy, cool sustenance, living water, and you exchanged it for putrefied water in a vessel that in essence is so cracked it can't even hold water. That's what he's saying. Verse 14, is Israel a slave? It's a rhetorical question. She was, but God freed her. But now she's acting like one again. Is he he a slave or is he a home-born servant? Why has he become a prey? God liberated Israel from Egyptian bondage 430 years, but you will see she enters back into political alliance with the very people who put her in bondage. It's how crazy it is. It's like a Christian set free and going back under a yoke of sin again. God could say the same thing. Are you a slave? I set you free to be a son, to be a daughter. Are you a slave to sin again? It's the same thing. Verse 15, the young lions have roared at him. They've roared loudly. They've made his land a waste. His cities have become destroyed without inhabitant. Also, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Those are cities, two cities in ancient Egypt. God freed the people from those cities, but Israel entered into political alliance with 
Egypt and these very cities have subjugated Israel again. That's the uh, indication flowing from the words, they've shaved the crown of your head. That was an Egyptian thing when you subjugated a people group. Verse 17, have you, have you not done this to yourself? Ah, you know, God doesn't have to punish his kids who go astray. Going astray is their own punishment. Look, have you not done this to yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? But now what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? You see, in addition to forsaking the Lord for false gods, Israel forsook the Lord for false political alliances. Interesting. Israel decided we have to be safe in order to secure ourselves. We'll enter into alliance (laughs) with Egypt and Assyria. Isn't it interesting? Uh, uh, so Israel, Israel entered into alliance w- with those who who want to devastate her and and see her destroyed. She exchanged an alliance with God, who would be her rock of protection, for an alliance with these foreign nations. And so these fickle changes in foreign alliances is very typical of the day in which we live. I find. I fear for our country. Uh, interesting to me that the foreign alliances we are forming <laughs> are increasingly um, away from those who have historically been our friends and more in the direction of those who are our enemies. It's the same blindness, you see, same darkness here. Verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you. See it again? God doesn't have to punish his kids. The worst, most miserable person on earth is one of God's kids who knows better and still disobeys. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your apostasies will reprove you. Know, therefore, and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago, I broke your yoke. I tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Saved to serve Almighty God. Them, us. That's our purpose. Saved to serve. God frees us from bondage and a yoke to do so. Israel said, nope, I will not serve. Instead, for on every high hill and under every green tree, you've lain down as a harlot. See, it's a metaphor for spiritual adultery. That's the nature of the intimate marital bond God has entered into with those of us who know him and ancient Israel. When it's violated, it's like taking on other partners. Verse 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Now get this, I memorized this verse. 22, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. So here's what's going on. Israel's religion is unbelievably attractive in many ways. I mean, we got holidays and we have customs and we have special foods and songs. We got great music and we dance. Sorry, sorry, my fellow Baptists. I mean, we just, we just let it happen. 
We've got rabbis and cantors. Cantors chant. I mean, it's beautiful. We have fast days, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. All kind of, we have Shabbat, Sabbath observances. All kind, I mean, we got stuff you have not... I mean, don't talk to me about tradition. We got traditions to make you guys look like rookies. <laughs> and it's a mask to hide the real problem. The heart of the problem is the problem with our heart. And religion, I don't care how externally beautiful and appealing it is, it's just like lye and soap. All it does is remove external staining and defilement. But God says it doesn't remove the stain of your iniquity. It's not just Israel's religion, it's the world's religion, Islam. All kinds of stuff. I mean, I mean, they're sincere, and the pilgrimages, and Mecca, and the, you know, and the, the, the and, you know, the, the clergy, and the reading from the Quran, and the. I love the part that the women are supposed to walk six paces behind the men. That's the part of Islam. I just, I eat that up. <clears throat> Buddhism or Hinduism or wait a second. Let me tell you about the religion of the day. Environmentalism. Now, I didn't say we shouldn't be good stewards. Look at when we're finished here today in the next three, four hours. We'll turn the lights off, I promise you. We want to be good stewards. We will. We're not going to burn these things if we don't need them. That's a whole lot different than worshiping Mother Earth. You understand what I'm saying? Now, why are people getting on the Mother Earth bandwagon? Because then you don't have to bow before Father God. So modern-day environmental movement is a distraction from the real problem. What's the real problem? Internal pollution. I don't have to go green. I have to go red. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the red blood of Jesus. So the environmental movement is an unbelievably creative, brilliant distraction by Satan to get even our kids. I mean, we got all, everyone's going green. Everyone's going green. Eco friendly. Build eco friendly this, do eco friendly industries, eco, 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 eco. It's nothing but a distraction from the real issue. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity remains before me, declares the Lord God. Everyone, I have never seen such passion for a movement in my day than the Go Green movement. I'm telling you, it's modern day religion. We are going to save the earth. And that way we don't have to worry about the need to be saved by the Savior. Don't you see what's going on? Don't you see? So, yeah. Verse 23, how can you say I'm not defiled? I've not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you've done. You're a swift young camel entangling her ways. Folks, the worst deceit is self-deceit. The person who says there is no hell, God will not judge, he's loving. You Christians talk about judgment and doom and hell and God's wrath. No way. I don't have a need to be redeemed. I'm not a sinner. 
Do you know people who deceive themselves into thinking they are not guilty are beyond redemption? You're beyond redemption unless you see a need to be redeemed from the penalty of sin, don't you see? So you have the most unbelievably corrupt people today denying their sin. Hollywood people. I'm not being critical. I'm just trying to tell you. I mean, they flaunt it. It's unbelievable. So you have a guy like Sean Penn who's darkened in his understanding, to put it mildly, who's one of the first to Haiti to help after the earthquake. That's commendable. Don't misunderstand. But here's a guy who's unbelievably darkened in his understanding, corrupt like crazy, who's hiding behind this feigned mask of social justice, lie and soap, you see, but, but it doesn't deal with the, the stain of the iniquity of his sin. And so that kind of person at this point is beyond redemption, seeing no need for redemption. Now, we don't pray against. We pray for people like that. We pray for light to break through. We pray for a softened heart. But the worst deception is to deny your sin. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion in the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Look, folks, I don't have to be graphic, but it's the metaphor of uh, a of promiscuity, one partner after another instead of um, loyalty to covenant God. Keep your feet from being unshod, verse 25, your throat from thirst, but you said it is, look at this, but you said it is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers and after them I will walk. Look at this. Israel had gone so deep into her sin. It became such a patterned lifestyle. Even when given the opportunity to change, she essentially said it's hopeless. This is who I am. It's like trying to minister to a homosexual person who says, I'm hopeless. This is the way I am. It's like trying to minister to a drug-addicted person. I am hopeless. This is the way I am. It's like trying to minister to a sexually addicted person. I can't stop it. This is the way I am. See? No. There is hope. Jesus is the God of all hope. He makes new creatures out of old ones. He reverses patterns of sin. He can transform us. He makes us to be born again. Reborn. But you can get so locked into it, you think there is no hope. That was Israel's case. Verse 26, as the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They their kings, princes, priests, prophets, who say, get this, who say to a tree, you're my father. To a stone, you gave me birth. For they've turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they'll say, arise, save us. What's the deal with the tree and the stone? The pagan uh, uh, religious people of Israel's day worship trees and stones. Israel actually, instead of influencing them, was influenced by them. And instead of attributing her existence to creator God, she's attributing it to elements in creation. The tree I will worship, the stone I will worship. It's radical environmentalism of an ancient kind. 
I will worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. You see? By the way, nothing's new today. Did you know that? It's the same stuff. But where are your gods? Verse 28, which you made for yourself. Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I've struck your sons. See, he tried discipline. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets. God sent prophets, messengers. Israel killed them. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel? You know what this is, verse 31? I'm telling you, it's like a grieving parent who sees a child on the run. It's like God saying, have I been a wilderness to Israel, a land of thick... Why do my people say, we are free to roam, we will no longer come to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. Look, a young gal gets married. She has taken a long time to pick out the perfect dress. She maybe has a veil. She has a certain necklace. I don't know. She surely has a ring. She has all of the attire, all of the attributes of weddedness. Can she forget she's married? (laughs) Can she forget that on that day she became a married woman? No, you say. And God says, that's exactly what Israel did. She forgot me. Days without number. How well, verse 33, you prepare your way to seek love. Therefore, even the wicked women you've taught your ways. Also, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. I want to make a side comment. That's a reference to Israel's social injustice in the ancient time. You see, on your skirts is the blood of the innocent poor. And I want to make this statement. You don't have to buy it. Um, Liberalism, the religion of liberalism, political, religious, philosophical liberalism, would persuade the rest of us uh, that it will do a much better job in addressing the needs of oppressed people in society, that it will be on the forefront of social justice issues, whereas others have not been. Historically, however, that has not been proven to be true. At the forefront of every major social justice movement have been the people of God. So I think of industrial 1800 um, England where children were forced to work in factories and child labor laws, which we observe today, were inaugurated not by the government but by William Wilberforce, a strong born-again evangelical Christian. On and on and on. It's a lie that liberalism will improve the lot of oppressed people. Historically, the opposite has been true. When there is an oppressed people, when needy, particularly economically, they will vote in and support a liberal leader. But it's never worked out for them. To give some extreme examples, I think of Idi Amin in Uganda, 
Ceausescu in Romania, Stalin in Russia, Hitler in Nazi Germany. Promises of promotion and change and improvement in the economic lot of people. And then it's turned against them. Why? If a leader is not right vertically, he cannot be right horizontally. You get it? When you know the giver of life, you value life. When you don't know the giver of life, you can snuff out the life of a baby in a womb, a diseased or an elderly person before their time through euthanasia. We're in a good spot today. Because a loving God is allowing us to see whether we can do it better. I don't think we could. A loving God is allowing us to see what life without him looks like. Have a look. It's a good spot to be in. You have to come to the end of your resources before you cry out to Almighty God. So, uh, verse 35, you said to me, I'm innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Oh, don't talk to me about sin. I'm a good person. You know, we let's hold hands, let's sing songs, let's engage in humanitarian efforts. It's all a mask for a distraction from the real problem, which is internal renovation. Behold, I'll enter into judgment with you because you say I have not sinned. Look at here. Sin is not the problem. Denial of sin is the problem. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin. He has a solution to the sin problem, but there is no solution to the problem of the denial of sin. That's a person who's just going to have to live with it. You see? Verse 37, from this place also you will go out with your hands on your head. Do me a favor. Put your hands on your head like this just for a second. Interlace your fingers. What do you look like? Thank you. A bunch of halfway charismatics. No, no. You look like a bunch of POWs. That's what you look like to me. Hands on your head, interlace your fingers. That's the image. From this place also you will go out with your hands on your head like a bunch of subjugated prisoners. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. And you will not prosper with them. Okay, so here's the deal. If there was no more Bible after Jeremiah chapter 2, I will tell you what you know about God. You know that he's not to be messed with. That's it. That's all you know. Strike everything else from the... You know much more. Assume you didn't. Assume the only revelation of God given by God was Jeremiah 2. You would know he's tough. He's strong. He will judge. Don't mess with him. But there's more Bible. For instance, there's Jeremiah 3. It is true that God is unapproachably holy. He is a consuming fire. He is a judge. He is uh, 
a God of wrath, righteous indignation, and all the rest. But he's also the God of all grace and mercy. He's the God of amazing grace. He does not respond to us in accordance with our sin or deeds. He forgives it if only we ask him to. Where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, doesn't it? Though we be unfaithful, he remains faithful. These are Bible verses. I'm not making this up. How are you going to know that if all you have is Jeremiah 2? Ah, you got a lot more. Now, I want to tell you the number one evidence that God is not only strong and mighty, he's also forgiving and gracious. Jews. Hang on, Charlie, let me finish this. What I have to say is more important. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly. I have to. You're not going to. No, we'll get to you, brother. Um, look, 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 look. I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I've got to tell you this. If Jews didn't exist today, if Israel wasn't a nation, you would not have as much evidence that God is not only holy, but he's forgiving. Because I want you to explain what I'm doing here. I don't mean here, I mean alive. Why are the descendants of Abraham... I'm a Jeremiah 2 person, don't you see? Those are my people right there. I'm not talking about Irish people. I'm talking about Jews. We blew it big time. Why hasn't God snuffed us out? He's the God of all grace. Listen to me. The next time you doubt it, though you be a Christian on the run... You have to say, yeah, but the Jews are still here. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And that's why Satan has to drive the Jews into the sea. If he annihilates the Jews, whether it be through a holocaust or whether it be uh, destroying the nation of Israel, whatever it is, whether it be through anti-Semitism, who knows what. If he does that, you're going to be robbed of great evidence of the fact that though God is a consuming fire, he's also a God who stands willing to forgive and pardon. And not only that, he also stands by as a God willing and able to transform the heart of the most hearted, stiff-necked people on earth. Look at the heart of the people represented in Jeremiah 2. I want to know how that's going to change. They don't even think they can change. This very book, Jeremiah, will later tell us, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made of old, the covenant which they violated. See, that's the law of Moses, Mount Sinai. He said, in those days, I will inscribe my law in their hearts. The law inscribed on stone was disobeyed by Israel. God said, I'll change your heart and they will be my people and I will be your God. Folks, the number one evidence that God is holy, but that God keeps his promises and does not lie and that God is gracious and merciful is the existence of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob today and the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948. It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with a spiritual reality. If Satan can get rid of the Jews, he can say to you, my fellow sometimes wayward Christians, you have blown it and God 
has withdrawn his salvation from you. Just as he did with Israel, so to you. But what did he do with Israel? Can you please tell me why Jews are alive today? Six million perished in the Holocaust, but there's 13 million alive today. How did that happen? Where are the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Nazis? Please tell me. These are great nations. Why are puny little Jews still hanging out? Because God is using this. There's nothing inherently good about Jewish people. Don't get me wrong here. He's using it to show something to the world about himself. Where we have failed, the ultimate Jew, the Lord Jesus, has not failed. But God has not forsaken Israel, and he will fulfill his promises, and you'll begin to see it again in Genesis 3. We need Genesis 2 to show us what we deserve, and then we need, uh, not Genesis, Jeremiah 2, and then we need Jeremiah 3 and the rest to show us that he didn't give us what we deserve. Grace greater than all my sin. So, Lord willing, if he doesn't return before next week, we'll get into Jeremiah 3 and see what he does from there. Now, Charlie, go ahead. Tell us what you wanted to say, because I know if we don't give you a chance, you get real mad and huffy. Interesting. Tables are turned, aren't they, Charlie? Oh, money. Yeah. These things are happening, aren't they? In our day. And so this is not a history lesson on ancient Israel. This is, this is news today, isn't it? It's current events. Good. That was a good point. I'm really surprised. <laughs> and the, the other evidence of the grace of God is Brother McKinley right there. We should pray. Go ahead, Sal. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good point. No, you don't have to be sorry. We're supposed to. No question. Good, good word, Shelly and Sally. We're supposed to gather to scatter, someone said. You have one brain? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. So pray for their husbands, would you please? We really should pray. Lord, we should just. Uh, what comes to our mind is Thanksgiving. Thank you. Lord Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve. Thank you for your forbearing spirit and your patience. Pardon. You've cast all our sin behind your back. And Lord, you've changed us from the inside, haven't you? We're different. Not perfect, no way. But we're different. You've given us a circumcised heart. You've removed our heart of stone. You've removed the veil. You've done all this work. 
It's who you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything. We really appreciate it. Sally said, we don't want to be complacent. We want to be salt and light. We don't want to be angry and mad at folks out there. No, we would rather um, be living proof of a loving God in front of them. So, Lord Jesus, where we need to be revived, we pray for it. Thank you for everything. We surely, surely look forward to your return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you, folks. See you next time.